The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. To his readers who are primarily Jewish, who had come to Christ as Jewish Christian, but what, they're tempted to go back. They're tempted to go back to the familiar. They're tempted to go back to what they thought brought them closer to God, which was the whole religious system. And those who come to Christ out of a system that has a lot of, lot of bells and whistles and smells and all of those things, they tend to have a hard time because they want that. To them, that is identifying with God. And so the writer in Hebrews is trying to explain that everything you see that identifies you as a Jewish person, the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, all of that pointed to a greater reality. And the greater reality you can't see with the eyes of your physical body, you have to see through the eyes of faith. And so he's trying to point them to Jesus. And she was wearing the right shirt this morning. I applaud you for the shirt. Jesus is better. That is the theme of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Whatever you can think of, Jesus is better. And it's a great superlative. That is it. And that's what he's trying to argue through the book of Hebrews. He's greater than Moses. As great as Moses was, Moses was simply a servant in the house. Jesus is a son over the house. He's greater than all the angelic realm. Even though through them they provided the law to Moses, he's better than the angels. He's the king of the angels. He is better than the Aaronic priesthood. In fact, he's a priest of a whole different order. The priesthood of Melchizedek who there in Genesis 14, that little guy who appears for a few verses, and it disappears. That was just a glimpse, a snapshot of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ one day that would extend forever. Not a priest of the son of Aaron. Oh no, because they died. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. Melchizedek, he's a priesthood of a whole different order that David picks up on in Psalm 110. Jesus is better than Aaron. And indeed, Jesus' sacrifice is better because you guys know this, the blood of bulls and goats, what? It won't take away sin. And so on the heels of 10, 1 through 18, he's been saying his sacrifice is better. Jesus' sacrifice is perfect. There needs to be no other sacrifice at all, ever. End of story, done. Therefore, therefore, in light of this greatness, what are we supposed to do with all of this? What are we supposed to do with this new reality? Well, number one, here's what we're supposed to do. You're supposed to seize the vertical access. You're supposed to seize the vertical access. Look at verse 19 again. And really, he's summarizing real quick here everything he's been arguing over the previous chapters. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, what are the holy places? Well, it's not the temple. The holy place is now the new temple which is in heaven, which is where our high priest is, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way. Well, what was the old way? The old and dead way. But now it's new and living because Jesus rose again. Therefore, the sacrifice is a living sacrifice because he is alive from the dead. And he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us. I call these the salad verses. These are the salad verses. Because all the inheritors are let us, let us, let us. It's all let us. And who's been included in it? He's not saying let you. He's saying let 
The same command given to the people is the same command given to the author. He's not high above them and saying, well, this is all for you. I'm, of course, better than you are. No, he's saying, I'm in this. Let us what? Draw near. Let us draw near to this heavenly tabernacle. Why do we draw near? We draw near in faith. We draw near in faith. Look what he says in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of what? What's the word? Full assurance of faith. Okay, come on. We got to wake up this morning. Look at the text. It's coming right on the text. Full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's what you need. Everybody on the planet. If they're going to approach the living God of the universe, it has to be in verse 22. If verse 22 is not happening in their life, there's no way they can approach this God on good terms. There is no way. But if you're in verse 22, then with full confidence, with sincerity, and in fact that word there, let us draw in with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with a true heart, a life in us, a life is truth means genuine, without superficiality, hypocrisy, or ulterior motive. Coming to God with full assurance requires commitment that is genuine. I remember I was at a wedding years ago, sitting uh, in another denomination, and we're on that Saturday sitting at the wedding, and the priest got up at the end of it and said, your obligation is fulfilled for the weekend of church attendance. And all the guys I was sitting were like, yes, yes. Get it out of the way. That's not drawing near to God in faith. That's not coming to God with a true heart and full assurance. That's not a true heart. That's a disingenuous heart. Because God looks on the heart, right? Mere physical attendance is unimpressive to him. Indeed, the Pharisees hung out at the temple all the time. And Jesus had his harshest words for those who were in attendance the most. Because they felt their attendance is what made them right before God. But it's drawing near in faith. Our hearts should not only be sincere, but what else does he say? They should be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Sprinkled with what? Sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. You've got to understand the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and how profound it is. Because when your conscience begins to condemn you for sins committed either presently or in the past, let me tell you, it's not years of counseling you need. It is understanding the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson state. He washed it white as snow, right? That it's all clean. That when you come to faith in Christ, all of your sins are forgiven completely forever. There is now no condemnation, right? It's completely done. And that's how you draw near in full assurance with God is understanding that you have been sprinkled, you've been cleansed. But notice that the cleansing is not external. That's what was done under the old covenant called external stuff. It's our hearts that have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure waters. This is obviously reflected upon the priesthood, only this is done at the heart level. That Jesus cleanses the innermost thoughts and desires. In Christ, our sins are completely covered by his blood. Completely covered by his blood. And our lives are completely transformed because of that. 
God went to great lengths so that you could have complete open access to him. Complete. Think of under the old system. It'd be like when I did work for the government, if I said, hey, come visit, come, I'll, I'll give you a tour of the White House, come. And so you came. You came to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I met you at the gate with the uniform division is. And I said, hey, come on. I can't take you anywhere in the White House. I don't have that kind of access. I can only take you to certain spots that are allowed to go. But let's say you received a phone call from a man by the name of President Trump. He said, come to 16 Pennsylvania Avenue, I'll meet you at the guardhouse. Where do you think you're limited there? This isn't hard to do. It's unlimited access. He can take you anywhere he wants on the whole ground. And no one's going to say, excuse me, President, Mr. President, you can't go in there. No one's going to say that there. You have complete, unfettered access. Well, think of the old covenant. Gentiles were outside the fence. The Jews could at least come into the yard of 16 on Pennsylvania Avenue, and the only one who would go in the house would be the high priest, which in this case would be the president. And he could only come in one day a year. Leviticus 16 on the day of Yom Kippur was the only day he could go in. What kind of access is that? Such limited. And that's why he said in light of this, draw near, draw near, come. God has done everything he can to rip off the gates, to open up the doors for all that come through Christ. He's done all of this. That's why to reject that is so much worse than any other sin ever committed previous to this being written. Do you realize you're sitting here, you know more than King David ever knew about who God is and what he was doing? David only understood shadows. Writing Psalm 22, writing Psalm 110 that are messianic and others. He only understood the shadows. But you understand the full access allowed to come to God, to draw near to Him. Because if you're going to get to know someone, you have to draw near, right? When I first met my, who would become my wife, you know what I want to do? I want to go spend time with her. You know, that required me driving. Did I think that was a big burden? Come on, guys. No. You were willing to drive as far as it was necessary in order to go out with the girl you were in love with. There was no sacrifice too great. You were willing to sacrifice greatly in order to spend time with the one you love the most. That's the same way here. If you love Christ, you love to spend time with him. And you will sacrifice to do near. So how do we draw near? I think the phrase take initiative. You have to take the initiative. The doors are open. And you have to take the initiative. Take the initiative in prayer. Is this a sermon about prayer reading my Bible? Yes, it is. Yes, it is, because you need to hear it. Take the initiative in prayer. But I don't mean your laundry list of, Lord, bless them and bless that. We need this. We need that. No. Like God is just a cosmic ATM. Draw near to know his heart. Draw near to understand who he is as God. I didn't just sit with my with Rachel and just say, okay, I just need some facts about you. Would you just list off some facts? That whole relationship was developed in the midst of emotion and understanding and, and, and spending time together, right? Think of the relationships you have that are very important to you. It's engagement. It's taking the initiative. Taking the initiative not only in prayer, but in Bible engagement. In Bible engagement. And this I don't mean, if you have a five-minute devotional Bible, then just expand it longer than that. I'm like, five minutes? Five minutes? We spend more time watching news. 
We spend more time intrigued about what's happening in the world than we do about the God who's over the world. We should know his heart. Take the initiative in Bible engagement. Be read to study and to understand. How many people have come up? Now, obviously, we're always growing our understanding, right? Right? We're always growing our understanding. But to continue to pass over verses, go, I really have no idea what that means, but I just got to press on a second. The time schedule here, and I've got to keep going, get my Bible done over here. That's like what I said with my wife, though. Thanks for sharing that, honey. I got to do that. That's how she feels. Yeah. <laughs> oh, come on, guys. Look at me like judgmentalism. All this guy's not like, okay, thanks for sharing. You move on away. That's what we do with God. We treat God as if, well, I don't have a lot of time for it. So let's, the very God who gives us life, take the initiative in Bible engagement. Engage with the text. Engage with the God who is here. Because he wants to communicate to you. Thirdly, take the initiative in theological, right when I said here's ah, theology, theological reading, thinking, and listening. Whatever you want to do there. And reading, thinking, listening. I I'm amazed. There's such a, a division in the church today as I see it. Those who are just reading theology and everything that to get the knowledge. I want to know, I want to know, I want to know. And then we end up in endless debates and church splits over the minutia of doctrine. And I, in 15 years of pastoral ministry now, I now have been a part of those. And I'm so tired of that. Knowledge does what? Puffs up. But what? Love builds up. If the knowledge isn't driving you to love, then the knowledge is merely puffing you up with pride. But knowledge should be driving us to love one another, not to divide with one another. Or there's those who just want to, oh, I just walk with Jesus and whatever, and it's just all kind of fluffy, and, 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 and they don't hardly know anything. They don't understand the Old Covenant, New Covenant. They don't understand all of that. And it's not that you have to have some level of knowledge, but at least say, I want to know God. I want to understand who you are. I want to understand who man is. I want to understand who Christ is. I want to know. I want to know because I want to know your heart. Take the initiative in reading when was the last time you read a book just about theology proper? Which is, who is God? Like in Tozer. Knowledge of the Holy. Or R.C. Sproul's book on holiness. Or one of the books that are just the classics. When was the last time you fed your soul with just who God is? We need to be doing that. If you're going to draw near to God, you need to grow and understand who this God is that you're drawing near to. Because at the end of this chapter, he describes, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 31. Notice the warning there in verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, he's so concerned that they may shrink back from drawing near. And if they do, then they're going to fall into the hands of the living God. Not in a good way, but in a very bad way. So they should be drawing near. Second, they hold fast in hope. Hold fast and hope. So let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without waiting. For he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. So let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold it fast of our hope without wavering. This is, you're going through the essentials of the faith. This is essential that True saving faith is by definition a persevering faith, but it's not done in a vacuum. 
And stood in the reality of you living life each day, saying, Lord, I'm hanging on to you in the midst of the trials, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the difficulty. I'm hanging on to you. I'm holding fast the confession of my hope, even with everything around me. It doesn't make sense that I do so. I do without wavering. And he has he has said this very similarly in previous. In fact, hang a left just a few pages to chapter 3. Go back to chapter 3 and verse 6. Because he's, again, reminded to hold fast, to hang on, hold fast in hope, 3.6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, what? If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And then in chapter 4 and in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And now 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He keeps bringing this up again, trying to add the weight of the intervening argument of who Christ is and all that he has done. Hope is so important in the Christian life. Hope is so important. In fact, hope and faith have a symbiotic relationship together. They feed off of each other. As your faith grows, so will your hope grow. And as your hope grows, so will your faith grow. In fact, John Calvin states that hope is the child of faith. And it is fed and sustained by faith to the end. So if you find that your hope is diminishing, is reducing, then you need to feed the hope by feeding faith. As your faith increases, so hope will follow it right up. Some of you feel hopeless this morning in a situation. You need to draw near to God. As you draw near to Him, He will then feed your faith, which will then supply the hope that you're so desperately wanting. Because hope will drive us to do amazing things, won't it? That hope will drive us. And hope is what is driving Scripture, is that there is a hope. It's a very important spiritual flotation device. We lose hope, we begin to sink. And the writer's so concerned with that with these people. But hope can give you patience and endurance in the midst of the most difficult situations. In fact, there was a story, there was once a young boy whose dad left him on a downtown corner one morning and told him, wait here until I return in about a half hour. Wait here. But the father's car broke down and he could not get back nor can he get to a phone. Five hours went by. Five hours. Before the father managed to get back and he was worried that his son would be doing what? In a state of panic. Dad, where are you? But when the father got there, the boy was standing in front of the dime store, looking in the window and rocking back and forth on his heels. When the father saw him, he ran up and threw his arms around him and hugged him and kissed him. The father apologized and said, weren't you worried? Did you think I was never coming back? The boy looked up and replied, No, Dad, I knew you were coming. You said you would. My friends, Jesus is coming. How do we know? Because he said he would. So we can hold fast our confession of hope. God's answers may seem to be a long time in coming, and our waiting may be uncomfortable or even painful, but God will always do what he says he will do. Why? Look at the verse again. At the end of verse 23. And if you highlight a line, ask her to 
your Bible. This word. He who promised is what? Is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Now we need to be careful with that. So I just heard a song that, or it's one of the songs that's probably popular that every promise is, is God is faithful and they're fulfilled them to me. Every promise in the Bible is not for you. It's not for you. That's why you have to understand how to study the Bible because people get really confused. When God commanded Joshua to do something and Joshua did it and God was faithful to Joshua, it doesn't mean if you go and do exactly what Joshua did, then he'll do the same thing for you. It doesn't work out that way. It doesn't mean if you go crucify yourself on a cross and God's going to raise you from the dead because he made a promise to Jesus to do that, right? So the promise, that's what we have to understand. The promises that are for us, he will be faithful in. And there's many. Believe me, you don't have to search for obscure ones. There's plenty of promises he's made to us. Why? Because we're in Christ. And the promises are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he who promised is faithful. He is faithful. He will fulfill it. That's why I feel sorry for people who sit in church for years and then walk away. That one day they'll stand before God and they'll say, so you didn't think I was going to be faithful, did you? You didn't have hope. You didn't have faith in me. He who promised is faithful. He is faithful. Without waver. Without waver. It's a tall order. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that? Especially in time periods when things aren't going well. This is two. Seize the horizontal opportunity. So we're going to seize the vertical opportunity, which is in Christ, that Christ has done for us. But also now we're going to seize the horizontal opportunity. This is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself, is what this is. And verse 24. Oh, we have more salad here. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. To love and the good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So he's concerned about some some here. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer is calling us to a thoughtful, continual proactiveness and our engagement with God's people. He is calling us as well to do it on an ever-increasing scale. Do you see that in there? So I'm not making this up, right? You all see this. This isn't like the doctrine of John. This is what he says. And all the more. All the more. This is lost in our day and age. I feel so sorry for the American church. If any of you traveled around the world, and go to other churches in other countries. It's such a different atmosphere to me. When we were in Haiti, and we're partnering together, and I was there with Brian and Josh and some of the other guys from the, the churches uh, here in Texas. Just a little atmosphere, how long their services are. They take their time. And it's really loud, by the way. I was there with a, uh, an ear, nose, and throat doctor. I think he was in the 70s. In the 70s, he goes, oh my, the decibel level here. This is, this is causing ear damage. As he was so panicked. But these people were so excited. They were so loud to sing. But what does the American church come? I met a lady who said her church, she said it's like a cattle call. They come in, you sing for 20 minutes, there's preaching for 20 minutes, and then you have to get out so others can get in and do the same. And you're like, boy, I wish it was preaching for 20 minutes here. But it isn't. But that's how she felt in her church. 
You move, Jesus, we love you. Good message. Get right out because we've got to get the next group in. The writer of the Hebrews would be appalled at that reality. Because what is exalted in the in the American church? Anonymity. Anonymity is exalted in the bigger churches and maybe even smaller churches. How do you fit that in here? How does anonymity work? First of all, if you want anonymity, you're in trouble already. You're in trouble because you're the Lone Ranger Christian. You think you can do it on your own. When all the examples, I mean, Paul, his friend Demas, Demas having loved this present world. Who is the biggest enemy to you making it securely to the end? Well, mm, let me think about that. Church I attend. No, look in the mirror. In the mirror is your biggest enemy. In your mirror is the biggest enemy that would cause you to not persevere to the end. And if you have a mindset of being the Lone Ranger Christian, I can do this on my own, I don't need anybody else, you're already wrong. Because you're in a wrong foundation altogether. Because while God saves, you know what he does when he saves you? He places you, essentials of the faith, he places you into a body, his body, the body of Christ, into the church of the living God. And then he begins through his spirit, through his people, to sanctify you and grow you. Oh, but there's so many conflicts in the church and everything. Right, and you're going to contribute to it as well. We all do. We're all part of the problem. But that's when God's grace, God's grace comes in. So, oh, I can't leave the stage. Anyway, I was going to, and I remember feedback, I want to do that. As we get together, right, I, I'm just appalled. So many people walk in the room, here I am. I mean, who's going to mention me? The whole idea should be, if I'm coming to talk to someone, my thought should be, how do I love them? I'm not worried about how to, what has to do they love me and how do I feel. It doesn't matter how I feel. It's how am I loving someone else? You get a whole church body seeking. It's not about me. It's about me loving someone else. That is a family. In fact, that's better than your family. Because your real earthly family doesn't do that kind of stuff. Thankfully, I've grown up in a family. We don't do family reunions. Maybe there's just not enough of us. But none of us really care. So I don't have the issue that some of you, but some of you dread family reunions. you got to go talk to the wacko uncle from wherever, who everybody finds annoying and everything. But yet you put up with it. Why? You feel an obligation to do so. Well, let me tell you that right here in Hebrews, the writer is placing all, upon you an even bigger obligation. And that is to be a part of a family so much bigger than yourself. But there's hope in this family. You know that Uncle Whatever is probably going to remain Uncle Whatever until the day he dies. But in this family, the spirit of the living God is moving. He's changing. He's transforming. He's at work in an amazing way. And so the writer tells us, let us consider how to stir up one another to good works. Let us consider. What does that mean? You have to think. You have to think, how do I stir up? I love the word stir up. You know what it is? Friction. This means friction. How do I stir up? It's like you're stirring something, which brings about friction to mix the ingredient. How do we stir one another up? Well, that's why we have pastors and leaders. They're the ones who stir us up. No. Is this a command to the pastors and leaders? I'll answer. No, it is not. It's to all of us. It's the body of Christ. 
There is going to be a friction in the church. Indeed, there should be in a right way. In a right way. There should be a holy pressure in here to love one another and to get involved. There has to be. So I don't want to let them hang on the fringe for a long time. No, we don't allow fringe people. We allow them to come in for a season, but then we're going to try to pull them in, right? We're going to we're going to stir them up one way or another. We're either going to stir them right up and they're going to go out, or we're going to stir them up and they're going to come in. There shouldn't be just one hot point in the church that is like the leaders and those few people that are around them. It should be all of us. All of us are called to stir one another up to love and good deeds. All of us are to do that. Why? Because it doesn't come out sudden deep. I don't feel like it. Anybody ever in here? I don't feel like talking to someone new. I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to talk to her. She annoys me. Oh, wait a minute. Those judgmental looks up here. You guys are all the same way. There's some Sunday she walk in, you go, oh, no. I want to see you. Oh, no, they're coming. They're going to come and share a really long story. Lord, help me. Help me to love them. Help me to encourage them. That's your flesh, right? We're all battling our flesh in those moments. There's some that are easier to talk to, and there's some that are harder. And what I need to remind myself is there's people in the world when I walk up and I go, oh, no, there he is. He's coming up. We're all that. We're all on many sides of this equation. But the thing is, is to get engaged, to get engaged. I've kind of admired the Amish. Growing up in Indiana, obviously Ohio, there's a lot of Amish in that area. And just the barn raising. Then everybody comes out to go raise a barn. The ladies come out with the food, and, and kids come, and men come with their toolboxes on their horse and buggy, and they come to build a barn. The church should be that. Not Amish, I like vehicles. But we should be those if there's a need in here, it doesn't go out there. It comes right in here. A single mom in this room should be taken care of. She should be cared for. Couples, families, it's all, it's all one big family. That we consider how do we help one another? How do we stir one another up to love and good works? What are the good works? What are people needing? That's why you have to consider. Because I want to do something that's you don't need to do it. Someone else can do it, right? That's why every person is different. Not everybody needs the same thing. And that's why you have to consider really know the people. You have to know one another. What does, what does Mrs. Smith need? What does she really need? Or are we just trying to come up with things to do because we feel better about ourselves? It's not that. But it's really seeking to think through how do we care for one another. And in order to do this, what do we have to do? We have to not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. You have to get together. You have to get together in order to find out these things. And you know what's so fun being here as your guest? Because I'm not really worried if you leave my church or not because I'm used to it. And you're not there. So I get to step on toes a little bit more than when home be a little more diplomatic. Stop arriving at 10.05. Stop. Get here early to greet someone. To talk to someone and don't run away afterwards. You know where the greatest ministry happens at the events at church? It's at lunch. Right? I got all nervous. Go to lunch with each other. You're here anyway. You're going to eat. Grab some people. Go to lunch and seek to talk about what Pastor Blair's preached about. 
Think through, but you have to consider that and you have to be proactive in that. Rather than having the church develop everything, as small groups, go do these things. Go do them, being faithful to this. Now let's get together and stir one another up. But come here ready, ready to engage the best ministries at 9.45 to 10. Greet people, pray with one another, then worship together, then go to lunch, and you will then go home and go, man, we've got a good Lord's Day. We've got a good Lord's Day. You get a call Monday morning. You know, you kind of offended me yesterday. That's okay. That's okay. Oh, how did I do that? You're growing that way. Or when the email comes and you're like, oh, no. I really offended them. And me too. That's when you humble yourself say, please forgive me. But what do many of us do when that comes? Not doing that again. Not, okay. People are going to be easily offended. I'm just going to get out of there. That's not the answer. Don't do that. Get engaged, humble yourself, ask for their forgiveness if it was a sin. And then keep getting engaged. God will bless you for that. And you know who you're being likely to do that? Jesus and Paul and John. You know, these stalwarts of the faith. Because they got engaged. They were engaged with people who really loved them. Could have brought them the wrong way. Especially Paul and Corinthians. So be faithful. But what's the encouraging part of this. Why are you going to do this? Why are you going to do this? How does he end the verse? I always have a way of throwing in the motivation there. What's coming up? But encouraging one another and all the more as you see what? The day. What is the day? The day. What's, what's this day he's talking about? The day of the Lord. The day Jesus comes. He is coming back. Therefore, you should be incrementally increasing in this. Most people begin just to get in habits, and we always do the same. He says, do it all the more as you see the day of Jesus drawing near. It is coming. Well, is this pre-trip, mid-trip, post-trip, pre-wrath, pre-mill, post-mill? Forget that. The day is coming. It is imminent. Well, I'm more of a post-trip. I don't think it can be imminent. Stop the nonsense. The point is, this day coming is soon. And you would do this if you liked your coworker. Let's say you're sitting with your coworker and they start kind of messing around at their desk. And you look down the hall, and here comes the big boss walking down the hall. You know who we don't like people checking their Facebook page while they're at work. And you can see their monitor shortly. What are you going to be telling your coworker? Are you going to be sitting there in silence? Well, you would if you don't like them. <laughs> yeah, keep, yeah, keep looking at it. No, you're going to say, God. I'm going to get off the page. He's coming. Because you expect the arrival of him to change the behavior of this person. The arrival of Jesus Christ should change the behavior of all of us at any moment. Just like if you're a student and you're sitting in study hall and some of your good friends messing around in study hall and here comes the teacher. What are you going to do? Stop the script coming. Right? Not that we know from experience on that one. But this day is drawing near, meaning Christ is coming. Who's this Christ? This Christ has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. This Christ who has given the sacrifice for everything. This Christ who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, the same Christ who back in chapter 1, that he was spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now for making purification for sins, he sat down the right hand of the majesty on high. The boss is coming down the hall. It's Jesus Christ. And when he comes, they're going to come and go, oh, that's all right that you were sitting. Not that big of a deal. Oh, 
that's not a big deal. He's worth believing in me. He's coming as a conquering king. That's how he's coming. There's no more negotiation. Jesus is really a bad negotiator by the way. When he comes again, there is no more negotiation. It's done. So may that be a motivating factor to stir one another up, up to love and to good deeds. And in order to do that, let me suggest as well, as I've operated in the church now for many years, and I'm guilty of it, I think there's more conversations about sports and HGTV and, I don't know, what, over in Houston, it's the Astros and Hurricane Harvey, that in the church we're always talking about anything but God in our private conversations. Well, unless we're in a small group, and then we have an hour that we're expected to talk about and then share with one another, right? Our conversations should be engaging with Christ with one another. It's going to feel uncomfortable at first, but let's be a church that when a normal course of conversation we talk about Christ and God and what he's done and his beauty and, and what he's teaching us and my sinfulness, that we begin, because if you can have the same conversation at the church or at your place of work where there's no believers, and it doesn't matter, it's the same conversation, then church has little meaning to you. It's not going to feed your faith. So this is more than mere fellowship he's talking about. He's talking about getting engaged and stimulating one another to love Christ more and to serve one another more, to love and good works. I like what Philip Hughes, he's a commentator, he writes, I think the quote is behind me, unconcerned for the well-being of the body of which they are members is symptomatic of self-concern and egocentricity. Self-concern and ego. Centricity. And to me, that has been the hallmark. The guilty as self. That has been the hallmark of the American church. We're just trying to feed self concern rather than calling people to look away from themselves. John Calvin writes, there is, This is so good. This is, there is so much peevishness. Isn't that a great word? I mean, I don't use that much in my vocabulary, but I really like it. There is so much peevishness. Of course, he wouldn't write in French. So there's so much peevishness in almost everyone that individuals, if they could, would gladly make their own churches for themselves. Isn't that right? We don't have our own church. Oh, I wouldn't do it like that. I wouldn't do it like that. We walk in. Oh, I wouldn't do it like that. In fact, there's one thing I had this morning. I wouldn't do it like that. I'm like, of course I would do it. Who made me God of the church? Not Blair. This warning is therefore more than needed by all of us. That we should be encouraged to love rather than hate. And that we should not separate ourselves from those who are joined to us by common faith. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. That we who would not even be friends in this world would somehow in Christ have a common faith. That I come from Houston, grew up in Indiana, and somehow we can come together. That I can read a guy like John Calvin. I don't agree with everything he writes, but I, I love what he writes. He's a 500 year, because he died in 1564. He's been dead a long time. He's from France. Lived in Switzerland. What do I have in common with John Calvin? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Who do I have in common with as I read Polycarp and the church fathers? Only Christ. <laughs> yeah, none of Calvin had no idea what electricity was. Cars, phones, no idea. But yet we love Christ. That should be our common denominator in our group. 
That's why doing a bunch of segmented, siloed ministries in the church is not the body of Christ. Remember when I got saved, I was single. So where do you go as a single guy into a church? You go over there. You're single. Okay. I'll go over there with those people. We're all single. Can I talk to those people? <clears throat> you can go talk to them. I can talk to some married people. What if they have children? You can talk to their kids. Oh, great. Thanks. But I, I'm stuck over here. And what happens once I get married? You gotta get out of that group. <laughs> go over to this group. I don't picture Jesus just loving silo. Like, because of your status in life, you're stuck. Does that mean you can't hang out? Of course not. But the beauty of it, if you're single, is hanging out with married people. Figure out what they're doing wrong. And don't make a mistake yourself. But you will. You will. You'll do it. Hang out with those who have kids. Because you may have kids one day. Sit in judgment of them as you're driving home. <laughs> and then wait until you have kids. And then I want to be there. Because we have but all of that in the body working together from the old to the young so many churches have all the old people over in their own class all that wisdom walking with Jesus for I remember being like she's been a Christian for 70 years and she knows more about walking with Christ than I ever would her sweet disposition but if you don't go and engage with people like that, you'll never know. If you're always only with people that are just like you, you'll never meet the older or the younger, the person who's in a different stage. Because what are we looking for? We have all of us reflect the glory of God in a unique way. That's a profoundness. Infinite amount of colors, right? Infinite way you can do music. Infinite way stars can do what stars do and everything. But well, there's an infinite way God can reveal his glory through the body of Christ. If we would get engaged and see how Jesus is working in different people's lives. Go, wow, I, I, I've never met anybody who Christ did that for. I remember meeting a girl when I was in India, uh, teaching at a Bible school there, and, and hearing how she came to know Christ in the midst of a Muslim family. Wow, God, that's amazing. That's not how it happened here, you know, with me. But that way we engage, know each other's testimonies, learn. Because God is revealing his glory. And in doing that, he's also drawing you to himself through it all. It's time for us to stop treating Sunday morning like any other event during the week. This is vital for your soul. For you to be here. Engage in worship. Engage in prayer. Engage in the preaching to an expository listening. And engaging in the preaching of his word. So that then you draw near to one another as you gather each week. So let me ask you this. What do you need to do in response to these verses? Because it says you need to do it more and more, whatever you're doing. So what is it? We can go around the room. I'm kidding. Relax. What do you need to do? For some of you, you may be visiting. And the point is that, oh, here you go, here No. When you first start coming to church, you want to discern, is this the place God you have for me? But when the answer becomes yes, then it's I want to join. I want to develop roots here. I want to know and love these people. I'm convinced God has called me here, and I'm going to invest my life here. That's what you're called to do. And let me ask you that. Who is the person who regularly engages with you over Christian matters? Who is the man or woman that's in their life, or multiple couples, that you guys engage together in the work of the gospel, that if you begin to wander from the faith, they're going to say, we're going after him. 
We're going after her. Who is that group that is going to be pursuing you as you're trying to prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, I'll take it, seal it, seal it for the courts above. As I come out about the, the verse of that ends. Who are the people who would go after you and lock arms and say, we're not letting you go? For, for many of you, I think it's right here. But for some, you got to get You're responsible. Enough. They need to call me more. They haven't called me enough. I want more phone calls and more letters. No, I'm kidding. Forgive me, Blair. Grow up. You haven't called me. Last I checked, we both have phones. Right? Right? When people criticize you for not calling them, it turns on itself. Because they could have called you. It, it, it goes back and forth. Same way with the church. You want to get invested? Believe me, Blair will meet with you. Anytime you want. Aaron will meet with you. Maybe not anytime. But they will make a time that's conducive. So you can get invested. And all of this is because Christ has come. What if you don't do this? Verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Wow. So if the day isn't motivating you, how about what happens on the day if you're against Jesus? This is even a stronger warning for those of you who know Hebrews than chapter 6. Everybody gets stirred up in chapter 6. Chapter 10, 26 through 31 is a very strong warning as well. My friends, don't be so quick to sacrifice this day for something else. Know that your own soul needs this. And what I'll know when Blair calls, you know what's amazing, John, is when people don't come on Sunday, I don't call and say, hey, are you okay? Where are you? Aaron doesn't call. People are calling one another. Saying, hey, we missed you. It's not condemning and saying, hey, we missed you. We love you being there with us. We want to say, I mean, how, how much flattery do you need? We miss you. We want you there. Well, I can't believe it. I can't even miss a Sunday. No, we want you here. I was on vacation. Oh, okay, we'll let you go on vacation. But we want you here because we love you. I mean, you should be excited about this. Someone care enough about you to reach out to you and say, hey, I would like you here because I would like to see you because I enjoy your company. I'm so offended at that. Then be offended. Go to a place where you're anonymous. I'm kidding. Don't go to a place where you're anonymous. Get a place where you're engaged. So can I sum it up and tell you exactly what the writer's saying? Very simply. You're like, hey, you would have seen this a whole sermon here. The writer is simply saying, and I got this from MacArthur, the door is open. The way is made available to enter into God's presence. Come in and stay in fellowship with his people and enjoy God's company forever. Friends, we're stuck with each other for eternity. Let's just get used to it now. And see God's grace in us. Amen. 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 Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks.